This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Play ball! It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everyone, on this episode of 30 with Murdy, a discussion about pitching with Rick Peterson, who spent almost 40 years as a pitching coach and coordinator, including stints with the Oakland A's and the New York Mets. Peterson gained a level of fame with the A's as their pitching coach during the Moneyball years of the early 2000s, which isn't exactly when the sabermetric revolution began, but it is certainly when it became popular and the term Moneyball has survived over 15 years later. The analytic revolution now includes a technological component, not just a mathematical one. The use of high-speed video cameras and video analysis is such a big part of coaching pitchers these days that the Yankees hired Matt Blake to replace longtime pitching coach Larry Rothschild. Blake lacks on-field coaching experience, but is very strong on the technical and analytic side. His resume is strong from the development side, and there has been a recent trend to hire coaches coaches like Blake, the Yankees are just the latest example. Rick Peterson, now retired from coaching, is a blend of the old school and the new school. He comes from a baseball family. The son of Harding Peterson, the former GM of the Pittsburgh Pirates in the 1970s and 80s, architect of the 1979 World Champion Pirates. The elder Peterson even spent the dismal 1990 season as GM of the Yankees. Rick's last major league stop was with the Orioles as director of pitching development. He has since turned to the speaker's circuit and in 2018 co-authored a book titled Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best when it matters most. The advances in technology and data have taken pitching to a different place in the game, and so I reached out to Rick to get his thoughts on where the game has come since Moneyball and what it looks like to him now. Here's my conversation with Rick Peterson. So Rick, I want to start with you by looking at where we are in 2019 with the state of pitching from this regard. You saw teams using openers and bullpenning games. You saw it in the playoffs too. But did the way Washington and Houston got to the World Series using a wealth of strong starting pitching. Did that show you that that part of the game is back? Did it ever leave? What, where do you see it right now? I don't think it ever left, actually. I think the reality of it is is the fact that, unfortunately, there's not 150 quality starting pitchers in the big leagues, which would be 30 times five. Yeah. And there's just not enough to go around. And I think what's happening, from and I think the roots of all this, which is really interesting to me, the roots of all with the amateur market, and it really started with the whole heavy ball program, and then it evolved into a drive line, and then and it was all about chasing the high end velocity. So in order to develop a pitcher to be productive in the big leagues, put him on the mound and let him win as many stuffed animals as he can, let him wear back and throw <laughs> as hard as he yeah. can for fifteen to thirty pitches, and, and you can help a big league team win. But unfortunately, it, it's I think what we've learned is that in order to do this throughout the entire season, like the Rays, you know, were put in position to do it, and I think you've heard a lot of the GMs come out and, and really talk about the fact that this wasn't our choice. Right. This, this, this happened to be the solution to the problem that we had because we don't have five quality starting pitchers that can cover 
you know, the reality of it is in the course of the season, you got to cover somewhere around 450 plus or minus innings. The reality of it is to get five starters to cover somewhere around 900 of those innings plus or minus, this was not enough to go around, unfortunately. And I think what we're seeing now is the fact that, that, you know, and I think what's happening is, and, and we'll touch on this later on, is that this whole deal of, of opening really transcended. The question started back when I was in Oakland, there was a money ball, yeah. and I can't tell you how many times I've answered this question or tried to answer it when people said, like, well, what's the magic number of 100 pitches? Why 100 <laughs> pitches? Yeah. I said, it, it said it's not the volume, it's how effective the guy is when he gets the 90-plus pitches. That's what it comes down to. It's not like, you know, can a guy go 115? On a 110, 115 on a, on a routine basis, you know, if he gets an extra day off on that, when you, when you have a day off and he gets five days rest. Yeah, I, I think there's, you know, there's guys like the Scherzers and the Strasburgs and the Verlanders and the Coles. You know, you're talking about all the elite guys. You know, they're, they're all capable of doing that. You know, it's just the fact that the, the industry doesn't really have it. When you take a look at starting pitchers, take a look, guys, and look how well they do as they start going through the second and the third time to the middle of that order. It, it, it doesn't work very well. Rick, is the is the driveline mentality and the max effort, max velocity mentality feeding into that? Is that what's hurting the stamina of these guys? No question. No question about it. I mean, when you take a look at, like, Chapman, who's arguably one of the top starters in the game today, Go take a look at go take a look at Chappie's numbers as a starter as he came through the system. Awful, mm-hmm. and I happened to be in Milwaukee to see Chapman's first first start, his, his debut in the big leagues, mm-hmm. and it was like literally going to the biggest show on earth. You know, you're watching like you know, you're watching the master walk in, and I mean, it was literally like being at the circus. Yeah, and guys <laughs> were, and even in our dugout, they were ooing and aahing at looking at the radar gun. I, I can't remember. Can't remember ever that that a pitcher came into the game and the attention was the as soon as the pitch was thrown, everybody's attention went to the radar gun if the ball right. wasn't hit. Right. I mean that, that that's amazing. And, it, it, and the same thing happened when Strasburg broke into the big leagues. I remember. You know, it, it was like a, it was like a, a must see TV because of all this high end velocity. But if you read Jeff Passan's book, the 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 arm, mm-hmm. and, and I think Jeff did a wonderful job on this book. But when you read the last chapter and they're talking about, and I'm not going to, I don't want to get into names because I don't want to get into this whole controversy about it necessarily. But basically, the whole concept of, of the whole driveline was like, look, you're a right hand pitcher or even a left handed for that matter, but especially a righty. You're a righty and you throw 84, 85 and you want to pitch professionally, go hit the books. Right. It's not happening. It's just not happening. So basically, there wasn't a responsibility of help. It was more the fact that, look, you know, through this heavy ball program and by cycling this and, you know, Dr. Fleisig and I, you know, together, you know, have been collaborating since 1989. And I've asked Glenn, you know, you got to do studies on this to find out, like, you know, are, are we bio, are we in danger biomechanically of, of injuring these pitchers? And when it comes down to that program, the answer of the program itself is no, other than the fact that and on his watch, on Dr. Fleisig's watch at ASMI, he will not let a pitcher throw less than four ounces at that max effort. He won't allow it. And, and that's, that's a big part of the program, throwing a, throwing a three and two ounce ball. There is something lighter than four ounces. Um, when we studied it, 
you know, we, we did a, we did our, a study internally when I was with the Orioles. You know, we used the modus sleeve to find out, you know, I don't want to get again into like really high tech stuff, but we looked at the stresses and the valgus forces on the elbow um, and, and shoulder. And because these guys wore sleeves and they did the heavy ball program, they did long toss. We, we, we put guys through our entire program and, and, and some of their own type things, guys who have been through those heavy ball programs. And there's no stress. The biggest issue with all that is the volume of those programs are about 45 throws in a day uh, on, on some, on some of those high end days. So you have, you can't keep, keep you, you can't just keep adding volume. So if you're a marathon runner, and you say, well, if I run an extra five miles with ankle weights on, you know, I'll, I'll improve my time. Well, you, can't, you can't add that on to 26, and now you're running 31 miles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you have to subtract the volume somewhere. There's a give and take with all that. And I think that's been the real dilemma. But I think to your point, there really wasn't a responsibility of potential injury initially because it's like, look, if, you, if you're not going to get into the low 90s, and, and, and up into the upper mid nineties. But if you don't at least get into the low nineties and you're right handed, the reality of you having a big league or, or a professional career to have a shot at is, is unrealistic. You know, you touched on something and the analogy of a marathon runner, I've kind of used this before and, and this is kind of shifting gears a little bit, but I want to ask you about this. You know, when fans talk about the older fans talk about complete games and eight, nine innings and guys don't do that anymore. They can't come close to doing that anymore. One of the things I look at is the amount of time that an athlete is trying to keep his body at a peak level. And when you're talking about going back years and seeing when these guys do complete games, they did it in two hours, two hours and 15 minutes, two hours and 20 minutes. Now I'm looking at times of game and I'm saying, I think it's hard for a pitcher to keep his body at that level for three hours, which is what it would take to pitch a complete game nowadays. Is there anything to that in your mind? I, I think there, I think there's something minor to it I, I don't think it's a big factor at all um just because of the fact that you know one of the things you name it we looked at it back back during the Moneyball ball era mm-hmm. <laughs> and and one of the things that we we looked at and, and we would always collaborate with dr andrews and his staff i mean that's who we would always refer to i mean even come into the postseason and we started talking about like oh, are we going to bring back Mulder hudson zito on three days rest but this one was individual. It was individual. It wasn't like, are we going to bring one of those three guys or all three of them back? But which one can we bring back? Mm-hmm. You know, and we would go back into spring training and, you know, all the little dings that he had. Anyway, we, we looked at, so we looked into, for example, what's a protocol for a rain delay? How long do you, how long, sure. how long can you go before you can bring that guy back out? And what volume does he exit the game? You know, once the rain delay starts. So I think there's something to that. But I think to your point, when people always say to me, well, back in the day, and they start bringing up all those yeah. stories of back in the day, every name they bring up... Hall of Famer. They're all they're Hall of Famer. Yes, right? I agree. I mean, totally agree. And to Jeff, Jeff Passon's credit in his study of of the arm, of, of Major League Baseball, of arms and arm injuries, it's been the same all through the history of the game. It, it, it really hasn't changed. What, what has changed is that no different than in medical science, you know, when people were dying back in the early 1900s, they didn't even know why they were dying. Now they realize it might have been, you know, some kind of disease that they didn't even recognize. And that now we have some, you know, solutions for it, you know. But I mean, you know, they didn't have the medical science to bring guys back, you know, like they did. So their careers ended up ending. 
But I think what was interesting, I think it was back in somewhere around 1880s or 1890s, and they decided that the following year they would allow the pitchers to throw overhand. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Mm-hmm. How about that? I mean, yeah. everybody threw sidearm when you take a look at it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's obviously evolved. You know, I, I, I want to ask you about the origins of where you were during, you know, when, when Moneyball era started, and you were obviously with the A's then, and so much was made of that. But once everybody, once the cat was let out of the bag, and everybody kind of started talking about the way the Oakland A's were doing things, and you knew the direction that you were headed in, specifically with Oakland, Hudson, Mulder, Zito, and everybody else, did you, did you see... Did you foresee it coming to where we are now? Did you think that it would evolve, the pitching would evolve to where it is now? Or is this an offshoot that you didn't necessarily see being an end result? Well, what I did, what I did understand, I think we all had the realization that as technology evolves, and it's one of my favorite quotes, and I'm not sure who the author is, but in God we trust, all others must have data. Yeah, you yeah, know, so, yeah. So, you know, once Sandy, you know, Sandy Alderson went into the commissioner's office, and that, that was the whole involvement of the umpires. And that, mm-hmm. that started with Questec, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And then there was 12, I think there was only 12 ballparks that had, had Questec. And that's when the umpires started getting evaluated on their ability to call balls and strikes effectively. And, you know, so there was always an evaluation. And then when TrackMan came out, we started looking, in fact, in fact, because because of Moneyball, when things would come out, I can't I can't tell you the amount of phone calls that I got from people. You know, hey, would you take a look at this? Would you take a look at this? You know, because I consulted for three different technology companies. Mm-hmm. You know, o- over that time to help to help their software writers write software that would be uniform friendly. Because the people in the uniform, the old school people, they didn't want to look at any of this stuff. Sure. I mean, we had this stuff back, in, we were charting all this stuff back with the White Sox back in the mid-90s, in the early 90s. And the White Sox were one of the first teams to start bringing on analytics. They had the first BATS program, mm. you know, back in the day. Nobody looked at it. And then finally, like one of Jerry Reinsdorf's assistants said, you know, Rick, you know, I know you're kind of interested in this kind of stuff, but would you take a look at it? And I, I was the first person back then to start looking at all this stuff. And we started coming up with formulas. Of, of efficiency ratings for pitchers based on talent and based on, you know, position of advantage. But mm-hmm. then when spin rates, you know, when, when spin rates started coming out, you know, that really, you know, because we were tracking swings and misses. And, you know, it was so amazing because, you know, Bruce Fleming, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for as an umpire, you know, and Bruce could be kind of tough on the field, as I think, as we all know, as Joe West is, um, you know, but he, that's the characters of the game. That's mm-hmm. the beauty of the game, mm-hmm. right? And I can remember with Ramon Hernandez as a young catcher, and Bruce didn't like the way that Ramon would like catch the ball and try to bring it back into the strike zone. Mm-hmm. And he got he used to get angry about it. You're trying to show me up the whole deal, <laughs> you know. So we so we went in to meet with Bruce and Ramon to try to like you know bridge the gap a little bit, so we you know can kind of have more collaboration on the field during the game and not you know all these heated interactions. And so Bruce is like, well, you know, if he sets up here and. You know, I'm not going to call that. And I said, well, Bruce, let me ask you a question. I said, how many actually, on one side of the fence, just one team, how many actually called strikes do you think that you call in the course of the game? So here's an umpire that's been doing this for, what, 25 years? Mm -hmm. And I asked him, point blank, 
how many how many call strikes do you think you call on one side of the fence, Bruce? He said, it's got to be like 60. Here's a guy who's been doing it for 25 years. Bruce, You on one side of the fence, the average is about 16. Bruce. Wow. Wow. I said, so, so he, and so, and the same thing evolved, you know, from Moneyball when we'd have these internal discussions. When I left the A's, I remember a game that Jay So pitched, and Jay So beat the Marlins uh, two to one, and that put him at five and one at that point of the year. He ended up going nine and one, and he was having a tremendous, you know, recovery, a, a rebound season. And after the season, he beat the Marlins. You know, we're in the, we're in the locker room. You know, with the owners and the front office, and everybody's all excited. Wow, Jay Sell, man, this is unbelievable. And I didn't really want to say anything in front of the group unless someone asked me something point blank. I'd rather have a private conversation. But they asked me point blank in front of everyone, is this the real deal? Is this, I mean, is this the real deal? Yeah. I said, well, let me ask you guys a question. I said, how many swings and misses do you think he got today? So here's baseball lifers. Yeah. But they didn't, they didn't look at the game that way. So I said, how many swings and misses do you think he got? 12, 14, 15, 14, 12, 13. He had two. Wow. Their, oppo- their opposing pitcher bunted through one pitch. That was a <laughs> swing and miss. And their opposing pitcher swung in a fork ball in the dirt. He only had two. I wow. said, how many ground balls do you think he got? Well, no one wanted to answer. He had four ground balls. Yeah. So when the batter actually puts the ball, it's gone up a little bit now. The batting average is 325 plus or minus. Mm-hmm. So if you're not getting swings and misses, obviously, and grounders or and or grounders, right? You you can't pitch in the big leagues, right? You know, is what. It's, but nobody back in those days. And then as the time evolved, you would hear the broadcast, and everybody's oh, he had 14 swings and misses today. He had you know all these ground balls. Everybody started to look at it once people started talking about it because they started realizing that sabermetrically and, and through predictive analysis, you know, this is where. You can go. I remember when we left spring training in 2007 with the Mets, and we had that, you know, awful September. I wouldn't even call it a collapse necessarily because we ran out of we ran out of inventory for pitching. We didn't have any pitching at the yeah. end, yeah. but we lost a seven game lead. But when we left spring training, you know, I was asked point blank, "Well, how do you think our pitchers are going to be this year?" I said, "Well, you know, I think you know, I think we're going to have some we're going to have some struggles." They said, yeah, but we got all these good arms. I said, well, good arms and good pitching are not synonymous. Hmm. And I said, mm-hmm. I said, we just evaluated, we just evaluated our team and we just said that the weakest part of our team is our outfield defense. So we're going to have pitchers that are going to give up the fly balls. We don't have anybody to run to go catch them. Hmm. And I said, when the batter hits the baseball, the average batting average is just over 325. So what happens, we lose by one game and everybody's all been out of shape and we have a big meeting and everybody's screaming and yelling and Rick, what happened to the pitching? I said, we had 84 less ground balls than last year and 42 less ground ball double plays. I said, that's what we said. We're, we knew that was going to happen when we left because we had a dominant fly ball pitching staff. Right. You know, I mean, it was like, like people were surprised. And, and what's so amazing to me, Sweeney, the Wharton School of Business has a class called Wharton Moneyball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've spoken there like three consecutive years, uh-huh. <clears throat> you know, which is so, I mean, it's really fascinating how even the Wharton school of business realizes the impact 
of what Moneyball had on, on multiple different industries. Sure. Well, and, and I've had people describe it to me as like, even just in terms of front office, as far as acquiring players, it's taken on a stock market mentality. You buy at this number, you sell at this number, and you don't let emotions sway you. But we've come to a place in the game now where all of this is coming together into coaching positions like the ones you had. We're combining the metrics and the technology that you're talking about, and these are the guys that are now getting coaching positions. The Yankees here in New York, they let go of Larry Rothschild, who's been a big league pitching coach for 25 years, and they hired a guy named Matt Blake, who is very proficient in the technology side, does not have coaching experience. Now, he might turn out to be a very good pitching coach. We don't know. But it seems to be a trend in baseball now where they're looking for guys who are really immersed in the technology and the data as opposed to let's get somebody to try to explain it to these guys and kind of let them work with it. You want somebody who's full in. Do you, well, one, do you like that idea? And two, does it make older pitching coaches maybe, uh, I don't know if obsolete's the right word, but are they just not the right fits anymore based on where teams are looking? Well, let me, let me answer it this way, Sweeney, is the fact that, and I have, I have, I have more questions than I have answers for you, mm. but, but here's one of the things that I think is interesting is that, that outside of baseball, because I've spent a lot of time now outside of the game of baseball, and I've been involved with selection business and coach business coaching and workshops and so on down the line. I think it's really interesting. The fact that, that people in order to have an innovative culture, which is what you're talking about, that baseball wants to go to, you have to have people with growth mindsets mm. without question. Mm-hmm. And then, and the traditional, and I say respectfully old school baseball people. And I say that respectfully, my dad played in the big leagues. My dad was in the front office with the pirates and my dad was a GM of the Pirates in the 79 World Series. Yep. We are family. He was executive of the year that year. So I grew up in a baseball family. I saw what old traditional Danny Murtaugh was Uncle Danny growing up. You know, literally, <laughs> when I was 12, because the We Are Family really, really came from the Pirates were a family. Yeah. Dan, Don, Don Osborne, Danny's pitching coach, was Uncle Don. Everybody was Uncle Danny, Uncle Don. I was like 12, and my mom said, you know what, Rick, I hate to tell you this, but Danny's really not your uncle. <laughs> I'm like, hey, I'm like, mom, come on. You know? <laughs> you know? But, you know, so in order to have a growth mindset, you have to be willing to, to evolve with change. And change is very difficult with people. And what people don't understand is that change starts within. Change doesn't come externally. Change comes internally. So my question would be, would it be would it be more advantageous to teach someone with the profile of a of a Larry Rothschild if he has a growth mindset to teach him how to utilize these tools these technologies more effectively or do you think it would be more productive to bring in somebody that has no major league experience and try to teach him the experience that Larry has has accumulated in his like forty years of baseball or forty two years of baseball and <laughs> For example, like when he's working with a pitcher, you know, like I use I use my own personal examples. You know, I'm working with some pitchers in the minor leagues, and we start talking about the changeup. You know, and of course, as as you know, like a lot of millenniums, they look at you like, what the hell do you know about a changeup? <laughs> well, I had Trevor Hoffman, Pedro Martinez, Johan Santana, Johnny Franco, Tim Hudson, Tommy Glavin. I had I had I had I had Hall of Famers that had that had the best yeah. changeups in the game. I know something about the changeup. 
they, they, they taught me about how their process of their changeup was, you know, and they had, and they all had, they all had a little bit different flavors on it. What, how, how can you, how, where can you gain that experience? I mean, it's going to take, I mean, in, in order to gain that experience, to gain that kind of wisdom, it takes 20, 25 years of experience. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's not something that you can, you know, go, go to school and learn, you know, in a, in a semester, hmm, you know, so right. from that standpoint, I mean, and that, that's why I was a consultant for all these technology companies because I had an old school baseball mentality, but now I'm looking at these new tools and saying like, you know, and I was thrust into this, you know, I mean, I'll share the story. I know you know the story, but for the people listening, in 1989, it was my first year with the White Sox and I, I was scheduled to go to AA Birmingham and Larry Heim a week before spring training, calls me in the office. He said, Rick, listen, when you get to Birmingham, uh, Dr. Andrews is going to open up uh, this American Sports Medicine Institute solely for the study of the biomechanics of the pitching delivery to reduce the risk of injury and to enhance performance. He just did surgery on Roger Clemens' shoulder, and he wanted to open up a lab and say, why are these guys getting hurt? Maybe we can find a solution. Well, that's kind of counterintuitive. The guy makes a living doing surgeries, and he's opening up a lab to try to prevent them. Right, right. That, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty uh, interesting, right? Yeah. You know, from that standpoint. So I get to Birmingham, and I remember walking out of Larry's office, and nobody was around, and I just went like, God, Almighty, what the hell is this? This isn't baseball. And I was the first uniformed person to walk in the lab. So now we get analysis back, and Dr. Fleisig is like, well, Rick, his arm is, his arm is laid at foot contact. His stride length is too short. The bend of the knee is too firm at foot contact. It's collapsing at ball release. And his hip rotation velocities are only 400 degrees per second. I said, what the hell does that mean, Glenn? <laughs> yeah. I said, I don't know what that means. And so he explained to me what it meant. And I said, well, geez. I said, well, how do we, how do we correct this? He goes, I don't know. I'm that's, not a pitching coach. That's your job. I'm just giving you the measurement. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I happened to be the pitching coach in Birmingham for three years. And I got to tell you, Sweeney, it was like going to doctorate. It was like going to grad school to get your doctorate mm -hmm. degree in the biomechanics of the pitching delivery. And it, it wasn't... It was painful. I got to tell you. I mean, it wasn't the kind of science. My degree was in behavioral science, sports psychology, and I was also co-directing the sports psychology program with the White Sox at the same time as I was a double A pitching coach. You know, so we were doing stuff so far outside of the box, and so we were looking for solutions. And we did more drills than any team I've ever been around. So I started, you know, my mind spinning to try to figure this out. I'm saying like, well, let's test the drill. So we brought in a we brought in a pitcher. We got analysis of his delivery, and then we then we got then we asked him to do some of these drills, and then we got analysis of all the drills. Well, some drills worked and some drills didn't, and we and we did we evolved to a program to understand that doing a series of these kind of drills will help keep the delivery intact and allow you to be to pitch more safely. You know, mm -hmm. is what it comes down to. It didn't really have much to do necessarily with performance mm -hmm. as it was injury prevention initially. And so when you look at Moneyball and you really say, cause, cause Michael Lewis was a wall streeter. Yeah. He came, he came to write an article for the New Yorker magazine of why the Oakland A's are doing 102 games with one of the lowest payrolls in the game. And after spending spring training for three weeks, he called his publisher who, who they had just published liars poker, which was a bestseller. And he's, and they said, look, go for it. And, you know, and I thought, so Sweeney, you talk about an opportunity. I sat next to Michael Lewis for six months on the team <laughs> bus. Yeah. Yeah. 
he's one of the brightest guys I've ever been around. Wow. And 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 it was and and it really came. You know, we always talked about how people who are successful deal with pressure effectively. Yeah. And, and why why they're so much more effective? Because what Moneyball did, Moneyball reframed the entire baseball, not only the baseball industry, but multiple other industries. Well, and that's that word you used is key in the book that you wrote that came out uh, almost two years ago now. It's called Crunch Time, and you're using your psychology background there and talking about reframing pressure situations. And it's not just for people who are, you know, trying to pitch with bases loaded and two outs. You know, you're talking about pressure, pressure situations in life, too. How did you come to, you know, to view that as something that you wanted to focus on and take your own experiences, pass it on to normal people like me? Well, I think what I realized more than anything else from, from, from being with Michael Lewis for those six months, and then I'll fast forward, in, 19, in 2008, Willie Randolph and I got fired in June from the Mets. Yep. And I was, I was under contract through 2009, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to sit out this year in 2009, unless I got like a three-year deal with somebody and, you know, it was like something I was really interested in. I, I just felt like I wanted a year just to, you know, kind of regroup and kind of get some self-healing. And so anyway, in February of 2009, I got a call from Billy Bean. He said, Rick, you're not going to believe this, but they're doing a movie on Moneyball and Brad Pitt's playing, playing yours truly. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> yeah. He said, I just cut off the phone with Steven Soderbergh and he asked for your phone number, and I gave it to him. I hope you don't mind, but he'd like to talk to you about this movie project. I said, no, whatever I could do to help out, I'm happy. Well, I was like Billy's right-hand guy, and I was also like like Art Howe's right-hand guy. Yeah. And I was kind of like the peacekeeper between them because, you know, Billy wanted to go in the whole Moneyball direction, and Art was, you know, traditional, successful, old-school baseball guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he liked to bunt, he liked to steal once in a while, swing at 3-0, and which are all anti-Moneyball yeah. concepts, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I was like kind of the peacekeeper. So anyway, the next day I get a call from Steven Soderbergh. He said, Rick, I'd like to offer you the opportunity to be the technical director of Moneyball. I said, mm. geez, I'm all in. I don't know mm-hmm. what a technical director does. I said, tell me what I do. Yeah. So he, so he told me the role of the technical director. And then by the time we got the phone, he said, how would you like to play yourself in the movie? Hmm. I said, wow, I play myself in my own movie. I might as well play myself in mm-hmm. yours. I would mm-hmm. love to. Mm-hmm. So his concept of the movie, which never got done, he had over 20 of us that were going to play ourselves. Wow. Art Howe Art was going to play himself in oh, the movie, wow. which was going to be incredible. I mean, his version of the movie was, was totally different than what actually came out. Mm-hmm. He was going to show pretty much on equal time and an equal format what old school baseball was versus money balling. Okay. And so I spent five months with Steven Soderbergh on this movie project. And a week before we're ready to film, we fly out to Hollywood. And I'm actually on the set with Brad Pitt, right? Wow. I'm standing there with Brad Pitt and Steven Soderbergh. I don't know who the other guy was. And, you know, they're going, Rick, so what do you think about, you know? And I'm like, Hanson, finally I walked away. I go, what the hell do I know about making movies? I don't know about making movies. Yeah. I suddenly screw all these guys' careers up. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, it, but that's really what it came down to. And I realized, I had the realization that my style of coaching was really reframing things mm-hmm. by looking at things and reframing it and trying to look at it differently. And then you start looking at other people. Like for example, I got to know, I got to meet and you know have a great conversation with Jerry Seinfeld because he was a huge wow. Mets fan. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, I mean the whole Seinfeld episodes—it's all about they're comedic reframes. That's mm-hmm. what they are, mm-hmm. right? 
I mean, it's like you show up at the airport and go pick up your rental car. They have your reservation, but no car. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing. Fu- there's nothing funny about that. But when you watch it on TV, it's funny, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, right. Right. Classic. And so, so it really came down to what I realized that, that you know, through Moneyball and through the stuff that we were doing, we were taking old school baseball traditional values and we were reframing them and started to look at different a different way to look at it and creating more value. You know, so when you take a look at, for example, you know, like when you look at like counts, for example, mm-hmm. like you hear everybody talk about, you know, strike one, strike one, strike one. And, and I'm not, I'm not diminishing that strike one has value, definitely has value. Cause if you can get strike one, the chance of that getting that guy and getting him base for the rest of the count is diminishing. Right. But the average batting average in the big leagues this past year was like just over 370 on the first pitch. Mm. So strike one, you better be careful if you're trying to get strike one or an Altuve. Right, you know? right, right. He's because, swinging. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's, sw- he's swinging. You know, or back when I was with the Mets, he tried to get strike one on Chipper Jones. Chipper Jones hit 460 on the first pitch with a slug of close to 800. Mm-hmm. You know, we, 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 Mike Piazza would say, look, if we throw this guy a strike on the first pitch with guys on base, cut your arm off and eat it. <laughs> <laughs> good advice. Oh. Yeah, right, good advice, right. You know, so so I, I think this whole thing just evolved, and as you start looking at, you know, how it evolved, what's amazing to me is the fact that I think what's sad about the game is that so many traditional baseball people, which is what you're talking about with Larry Rothschild, you know, are getting pushed out in order to bring in, you know, people with, with you know, some of the sabermetric backgrounds and predictive analysis backgrounds when the combination of both those experiences, you know, is, is that's the ideal. Yeah. You know, that's, that's definitely the ideal. And, but I think the fact that so many teams are going in that direction, it creates a competitive balance, right? You know, I mean, if everybody's going in that direction or most people are, you know, it creates the same competitive balance. And, and I think really, I mean, so like if you look at it business on reframes, you know, for example, like the CEO of AOL years ago said, hey, we're going to sell you Internet access. Yeah. Well, the CEO of Google came along and said, hey, we're going to give it to you for free. Right. We're going right. to sell out. We're going to sell advertising. Right. I mean, so that that was a total reframe of a major industry that totally shifted, you know, from that mm. standpoint. Mm-hmm. And, and I think when you have a growth mindset and you, you're willing to invoke change and understand that. You know, and that's why I applaud like a Brian Cashman, you know, like to have the run, to have the longevity that he has had yep. and to be able to have that growth mindset and keep evolving and to keep evolving, keep evolving. That That's the signature of greatness. Rick, I got one more that I want to ask you, but before I do, I want to ask you, do you, do you want to be a big league pitching coach again? Do you think that um, you are uh, qualified for it based on what, teams are looking for now uh is it something you still want to do no it's not it's something i don't want to do anymore Hmm. no i've you know i've had the privilege of doing it for 15 years and and i realized that when you do when when you take that role on that is your life you really don't have another part of your life and now that i've written a book and you know i'm doing a lot of speaking and corporate workshops and whatnot um, it's all about making a difference in other people's lives. And I realized that 
I can make a difference in, in other people's lives at a higher level and touch more people, you know, for what I'm doing now than, than going back on the field in uniform. And, 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 and also I really, I really don't want to give up the, the quality of the life that I have. I mean, when yeah. I, when I look at like so many of my friends now and, and they're like, Oh yeah, like last summer we went on this vacation and then, you know, we did this. I'm like, Oh God, I did none of, I did yeah. none of this my whole yeah. life. Yeah. You know, and, and I just started playing golf again two years ago. Mm. You know, where I'm saying I'm like I'm playing golf and, and not, not 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 like getting on a course like two or three times a year, right? But right. but actually playing, and I'm really enjoying. You know, I mean, I think as I said earlier, with the growth mindset, you know, I've like, I've kind of like grown outside of baseball. Mm-hmm. I would have interest as a as maybe a special assistant mm. or uh, some kind of consulting mm. um, as a possibility to to really help like some of the younger guys to look at. To help them bridge that gap, yeah. because I think I could really be valuable to helping them bridge that to bridge that gap, and, and also from the mental part of the game. You know, I think our book has a lot of value um, from the mental part of the game. You know, there's, you know, I look at all these players who, you know, like yeah, everybody has like some kind of mental coach now, and mm. you know, I mean, people, very few people even know. I'm, sure, I'm curious. We've known each other for how many years? Did you know that I even co-directed the sports psychology program for the White Sox? No, five years? I had no idea. No, no, many most people don't because I don't. I know I don't talk about it. You know, and and we and it was with Dr. Charles Marr, who headed up the doctorate program at, at Rutgers University. Mm. You know, we collaborated on that together. And and I took over eighty some players during that five year period of time through a personal leadership program. You know that was, you know that that, that Dr. Moore had put together that we'd collaborated on, and it was really the ABCs of mental and emotional skills. You know how to focus, how to how to deal with fear, worry, and doubt. You know because I think when you look at the major league level, and this is the part I think that is missing so much of when you take a look at coaching pitching. I'm going to say probably. The most impactful coaching I did in the big leagues was really coaching the mind. Mm, you know, yeah. I mean, it was really coaching the, the mental part of the game. You know, for the pitchers. And in in my wildest dreams, did I ever think that I would actually coach people like a Tommy Glavin or a Trevor Hoffman at the back end of their career? Yeah. I didn't. Even, I, I didn't think those people needed coaching, but those people. <laughs> Those guys needed as much coaching as, as they did probably at the beginning of their career because circumstances change. You know, no different than, you know, you applaud Houston to take a look at what they've done with Verlander and Cole. Yeah. I mean, here, here were two very good pitchers that are now Hall of Fame pitchers. Yeah. You know, based on the coaching that they did with the analytics. And, and a lot of that has to do with the mind. And that, that's the kind of stuff that we were doing. You know, we didn't have some of the, you know, spin rate. We didn't have the stat cats like we have now. Mm-hmm. You know, and and um, and trackman data. But I remember when trackman data first started coming in. In fact, the gentleman who brought it into baseball called me. I think back on it, I'm sitting where, where I was now when he called me, mm-hmm. going back about I don't know, twelve, fifteen years ago through a mutual friend. He said, "Rick, I got involved. You know, with this company Trackman. They've been involved with golf. You know, they want to take it in baseball." You know, do you think baseball will ever be ready for this? I mean, I talked to this guy for like, I don't know, 45 minutes. I don't even know who he was, right? Mm-hmm. I took a call because of a mutual friend. And then he came into Baltimore when I was with the Orioles, and he introduced himself. He said, Rick, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that phone call <laughs> going back about five years ago. He said, you, you talked me into – because he left – he, he had a position in the commissioner's office, and he left it 
to take the risk wow. to, to, to bring it in. And I, and I said, yeah, I said, if you can do it the right way, I said, but you guys, you know, I mean, I was trying to help them, like, give them some advice how to navigate through the old tool. Those are the people that are going to slam the door right in your face. Hmm. I, I have one other thing I want to ask you about, Rick. Um, Earlier this year, you lost your father, Harding Peterson, and as you mentioned earlier, you grew up as part of a baseball family. He was a longtime executive in the game, and about a month ago, I had a chance to talk to Kent Tacovey about the 40th anniversary of the We Are Family Pirates, and we talked about what a special team that was, the bonds between the players, and the mm-hmm. bonds that the players had with the city. They have not won a World Series since then. Pittsburgh in the 1970s was falling on hard times, and that team just did something uh, to the city. And between them and the Steelers, it was you know there's some civic pride were at work there. Uh, but it's obviously a very special team in Pittsburgh at the time. And I'm curious like where that team falls for you uh, because you kind of grew up in that environment, and and it was at a pretty you know uh, a, a pretty important time in your life, I would think. Yeah, well, I really appreciate the question. It, it's really amazing. What's so what's so incredible, Dad, Dad, when Dad got out of baseball, Dad just wanted to, like, get away. It was just like, look, I did this. You know, I mean, Dad didn't really like to talk about it. And, you know, it, and and then Dad had was really adamant that when he passed, like, he just wanted one article in the local paper. Like, Dad didn't understand the internet or all that, you know. Yeah. He didn't realize that, Dad, this is, go- this is going to be tweeted. He said, I just want one article in the local paper, the Forge paper in Forge, New Jersey. And, you know, he didn't want a big service. You know, he, did- he didn't want anything. He just wanted to, you know, pass on. Mm. Well, we did a memorial service for Dad, and we didn't put it out there. Um you know, we didn't invite a lot of people. We, you know, we, we kind of left it the way that he wanted it. Well, who shows up? Kent to Colby. Yeah. And, and I, and I hadn't seen Teak for a while because I was a bullpen coach with Pittsburgh for, for a year. And, um, and so I had a relationship with all these guys and, you know, I was, I was coach with them, but he, he came and I'll tell you what, I, I didn't realize he said, you know what? He said, I would have never had my career without your dad. Mm. And so he told me the story. So Teak being a submarine guy, which, you know, back in that day, who's looking for submarine yeah. guys, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Teak graduated from college, and dad would do these, well, I think most teams did, but dad would do these massive tryouts, like in Pittsburgh, yeah. you know, at Forbes Field. You know, there'd be like 500 kids show up, right? Yeah. And, you know, the scouting director's there, and, you know, they they time everybody in the 60 the whole deal you know so dad's there and like you know looking at everybody so, so he goes to the, the his scouting director he said you know as everybody ran as everybody thrown we got there's obviously one pitcher here this uh kent to call me he goes well let's get a catcher for him let's see him throw so he comes over and you know submarine and you know it's obviously wasn't a prospect but in their in their short a club in geneva new york they had had two pitching injuries that were pretty significant. They, got, they were going to be out for a long period of time. So dad said, that dad looked, you know, he knew, he found out like Teak was a very effective college pitcher, which nobody signed college pitchers back, yeah. back in the seventies, back right. in the sixties, seventies. But he said, he said, look, we'll, we'll sign you to professional contract, but the caveat is you got to be in Geneva tonight for mm. the game. We mm-hmm. had some, we're short on pitching. So Teak, you know, shows up, he signs a contract. Well, he has a great year at short A, 
course he should, right? Everybody else is 17, 18 years old, you right. know, thinks a college pitcher. So the next spring training, you know, they're having their meetings and, you know, they're going, you know, evaluating. You're like, look, you know, Pete, he's not a prospect. He goes, look, he did us a favor. He's going to pitch in. He's going to start an eight ball. Let's see what happens. All right. I know he's not a prospect, blah, 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 whatever. Well, he has a great year in A ball. So the same thing comes up the next year. And it's like, they're like, Pete, he's not a prospect. We're wasting <laughs> our time with this guy. Yeah. They're like, he goes, no, he's going to pitch in high A ball. Let's see what happens. Well, he evolves in double A. Then dad becomes a GM and brings him to triple A. And then eventually brings him to the big leagues. And Teak has the all time <laughs> most appearances of anybody in the history of the game. Yeah. It's just incredible. And, and, and it's just one of those, it's one of those many stories that, all of us that have been in this game forever, you know, have one after the next of these, like, nobody could do it, but they did it, you know, and it's, you know, and, and, and that's, that's really the, you know, what do I say, the mission that, you know, I was brought up with dad that, you know, the quality of a person's life is to truly make a difference in someone else's in a positive way and to be able to do that and to be able to offer that. And so that, that really was a special time and the whole, we are family, you know, that wasn't just Sister Sledge's song. That was like really going back to the Uncle Bannies and the Uncle Dons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was a family. Very cool. My thanks to Rick Peterson for sharing his time and thoughts. For speaking engagements, you can check out Rick's profile and contact information at rickpetersoncoaching.com. Follow him on Twitter at rickpetersonct. The book Crunch Time, co-written with Judd Holkstra, is available through Amazon or wherever you buy books. Pitching is still a huge part of this game, obviously, and the off-season spending, if it becomes what we all think it might, will back that up. Plenty more to come during this hot stove season. For now, please consider checking out the 30 with Murdy archive on radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That conversation with Kent Tocalvi on the 79 Pirates and more are available if you need to catch up. Subscribe and review and all that jazz. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.